And let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And yet, Father, we confess this morning that we are prone to see the insignificant things of this world as the joy givers in our lives. Father, it is so easy for us to be drawn away by the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches. And Father, those things can have a choking effect on our lives, so much so that your son, when he was on the earth, spoke of how these lesser things that give Temporary joy can choke the word and cause us to not be fruitful. So, Father, we have just sung that you alone are the real joy giver. May that be true in our hearts today. As your spirit works in our lives. Lord, You are the only God that is. Your Son is the only Savior that can save. And Father, Your Spirit is the only one who can give new life. You alone do these things. So Father, may we forsake the lesser joys of this life. Father, may we rejoice in the gifts that you give us, but may they never become or take your place. Father, may we long to worship you as a deer desperately needs the cool drink of a stream. Father, may we desperately need you. Work in our hearts this morning by your word. May we take the warnings that Peter gives us, Father, and may we prepare ourselves, Lord, to test the spirits. May we prepare ourselves, Father, to depend upon and see your grace at work as we reject the false teachings that are replete around us. Father, work in our midst by your Spirit as only you can. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. And we are making our way through this passage where we are seeing, of course, Peter's overall point in the book of 2 Peter is to show us that there is power given for us as pilgrims, as strangers, as foreigners. That power is found in knowing Jesus Christ more. And Peter in chapter 1 has spoken of the importance of knowing that. He's driven us to the means by which we know that, which is primarily the Word of God. And then he has pointed us to that because the reality is we live in a world 
And there has always been, just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, so today there exist false prophets or false teachers among God's people. And so we are called to forsake all, to follow Christ, to live in accordance with what He has spoken. And so Peter warns us that these false teachers are going to come and seek to exploit us and to beguile us with lies. And so we've seen these pilgrim warnings. Now we looked in verses 1 through 3 about the methods that these false teachers will employ. Of course, just as the Spirit of God is the one who produces the Scriptures, so these false teachers do depend not on the Spirit, but on human effort. They come in unawares, they come in secretly, they provide lies and deceit, and they cause division among God's people. They are those that will teach that, that sin really isn't that big of a deal, that you can indulge in sinful activities, any number of sinful activities, and the grace of God would cover it. They turn back what Paul would say, that should we continue in sin, that grace should abound. And Paul says, may it never be, by no means. But these false teachers come in and, and they say, well, yeah, Paul was a little off here. You can go ahead and, and indulge in, particularly in the society of that day, in some of the debauched activities. And they do this because ultimately they are greedy for gain. They want to fill their own bellies. They want to profit off of God's people. And so they exploit God's people. And in just a moment, we'll see really how bad that exploitation is as Peter provides some more uh, context for that. But then Peter turns in chapter or in verses 4 through verse 10 and he speaks of the consequences that false teachers face. That there is judgment reserved for those who deny Christ. And that is the major theme that these false teachers are turning from Christ. They're denying him either explicitly as as Lord, or by their statements that what he says as Lord is not binding upon his people. And so God is reserving, he's storing up wrath that will be unleashed on the last day for those who do and teach such things. And this judgment that is reserved is certain. So it's not just a matter of this maybe will happen, but it is a certainty. And Peter, again, reminds us of this because as we live in the world today, it seems like the false teachers are the ones that are profiting. They're the ones with the giant buildings. They're the ones with the private jets. They're the ones with the Maseratis and the Rolls Royces. And they're the ones with the huge bank accounts. But Peter reminds us that their condemnation, he says in verse 3, is from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. God will judge sin. This is not a possibility. It is an inevitability. And so even in his, his discussion of this, he's issuing a warning, saying to these false teachers, repent. Find in Christ the grace that is necessary to cover even these sins. And then he gives us a pattern of judgment on those who deny Christ. Speaking of three particular examples, the angels that left their estates, the, um, the world of Noah, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, very similar to what we read in Jude. And then we 
close by seeing how if God knows how to keep the ungodly under punishment until the day of judgment, you know what else he also knows how to do? What he surely knows how to do? He knows how to save his people, how to rescue the godly from the trials that they face. Well, as Peter has spoken of the methods, described the consequences of these false teachers, today we're going to turn and look at the character of these false teachers. We've seen what they're doing. We've seen the consequences of what they're doing. Now we're going to see what it is that motivates them, what in their character is driving them to do these things. And so uh, we'll see this particularly in verse 10 through um, verse 16. So look with me for 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. He speaks of those especially, keeping those under judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, these false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as a wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deception while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. There are several things I'd like us to consider this morning regarding the character of these false teachers. And the first thing that's introduced to us in verse 10 is that these are those who indulge in defiling passions. One of the things that drives false teachers, one of the things that they seek to do is to themselves indulge in and to encourage others to indulge in sinful indulgence. This is actually driven by the arrogance that they have. We actually see that later on in verse 10. They're bold and willful in the ways in which they go about what they're doing. And this boldness, this willful desire within them leads them to themselves indulge in what Peter describes as defiling passions. The idea here is of indulging in the flesh or pursuing sinful indulgence with no restraint and actually with pride in their activities in sinfulness. They're unrestrained because they ultimately feel that the restraint that the Scriptures and the teachings of the apostles and prophets that is placed upon them, they're above it. They've, they've gained some level of spiritual, um, uh, some, some height of spiritual uh, wisdom that they can say, well, I, that's, for, that's, for young, that's for other Christians, that's for those that haven't reached the plateau, if you will, 
of, of spiritual accomplishment. The Greek term used here for these defiling passions refers to that which defiles a person and particularly has an application to sexual debauchery. We only find the term used in the New Testament here in what Peter says. But we also find it in the um, Old Testament. Uh, We don't find it really in the Old Testament at all, but we find it in two apocryphal books. And this Greek term is used to refer to moral corruption of the soul. That it's not just a matter of their actions, but what they're doing is they're going wholeheartedly. They're going full-blown into these sinful activities because their hearts are corrupted. They're decaying. And that decay is seen in the way in which they act. And in the Apocrypha, which again we don't accept as Scripture, but nonetheless it is helpful for us in understanding what a Greek term means, It's actually used in the Apocrypha to describe God's own people and how far Israel had gone in their idolatry and sinfulness. Now, they have no restraint because they despise authority. Notice again what he says in verse 10. They indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. These teachers both taught and themselves lived by an idea that is contrary to what Jesus, what the apostles, what the Holy Spirit had said it meant to be a believer. Again, as we saw last week in Romans chapter 6, should we continue in sin that grace should abound? And God, and, and Paul remarks there, may it never be. By no means is that to be the reality of a believer. Jesus calls us to leave all and follow Him. And in that leaving all, we are leaving behind the life of sin that we are dead to. The baptisms that we, that we saw last week were an example. They were a, a show. They were, a, um, they were an ordinance given to show us what it means to be in Christ. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So why would someone who is dead to sin go back to it? It's nonsensical. But these false teachers cast off that idea. In fact, Jude had mentioned that they will use grace as an excuse for sensuality. They will use grace as a way for them to persist in sinful activity. Now, I think, we, I think it's good for us to, to recognize that we can all be prone to this, can't we? When temptation comes, when, when, when something comes across your path that you know you should not indulge in, you know you should not act that way, sometimes the devil will work in our own minds and tempt us and saying, well, don't you know, God's grace will cover that. So it's okay. How many of you have ever said to yourself, when you know that you've reacted in a wrong way, you've done something sinful, and and there have been circumstances that have pressed in on you to make it more likely for you to do or act sinfully, how many of you have said to yourselves, I'm not asking for hands, but I just want you to think about this. How many of you have said to yourselves, God understands? I don't know how many times I've heard people say that, express that to me. 
God understands why I acted in a sinful way. Sure, God understands. He tells us in the Scripture why that is. Because you're still wrestling with the old man. God's understanding of your sin does not give you license for sin. Nor does His grace give you license to persist in sinful activity. And so, the libertine message that teaches that God is not going to bring consequences, and we're going to see in a few weeks in chapter 3 why that is the case, as they are actually denying the return of the Lord. This libertine message that allowed indulgence in a debauched society is wrong. It is a lie from the pit of hell. We also see later on in this passage that the way in which they act is completely unrestrained. If you jump down to verse 14, actually um, in verse 13, and so it's, and one of the things we have to recognize about the verses as they're set up in our New Testament is they were not inspired. They were brought on later. So it's better to look at sentences rather than verses, particularly when you see that in um, the passage we're looking at today. So, so at times it's helpful. Most verses end at the end of a sentence, but sometimes they don't uh, because for whatever reasons the apostles liked run-on sentences and they just kept going on and on and on and on with their sentences. Ephesians 1 is a great example of that. But I digress. Look with me in verse 13. It's sort of in the middle of the verse. It says, They counted pleasure to revel when? In the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. There is a complete lack of restraint. The idea that Peter speaks of that they are reveling in the daytime is that a a normal person who is doing a shameful act does it when? In the darkness. In fact, John speaks of that. Men love darkness rather than light. Why? What does the light do? It exposes their sinful actions. These like irrational creatures, revel in broad daylight. They go about their sinful activities with no shame. Everyone can look on. Everyone can see. This may even be a reference to the fact that they would go particularly to the the trade guild God's temple in that day and would engage in what was often the case of worshiping these trade gods through sexual activity with a temple prostitute. And they would do that in full view of everyone. It was a very common practice in the first century. Peter reveals their character in verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery. One commentator put it this way that Every single woman they look upon is a potential sexual encounter. That's the idea here. They do the exact opposite of what Job has done. I made a covenant with my eyes that how then could I gaze at a virgin? That was the attitude of a righteous man seeking by the Spirit's power to turn away from sin and lust. These 
are always scanning. It's like their eyes are scanning everywhere and they're looking for the opportunity to engage in sexual sin. They would do well to heed what Jesus says. Again, Jesus tells us if, if adultery is not just a matter of engaging in the physical act, but everyone who what? Everyone who what? Looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. And so what is Jesus' call? What does he suggest we do if we're struggling with eyes that are insatiable for sin, eyes that are full of adultery? Well, if your right eye causes you to sin, sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, Jesus is not saying literally grab your eye and rip it out of its socket, but he is calling us to radical protection of our thought lives. Listen, we live in a day and age where the eyes full of adultery, it's easy to come across it. And we can, we don't now, we don't need to do it in the daytime. We can just do it in our shut bedrooms on a computer, on a cell phone. Pornography is available everywhere. And it is a result of an insipid way of human trafficking and sex slavery that continues to this day. And we just pull up a website, watch a video, look at some images, and there's no consequence. Nobody sees us in our rooms doing this. So what would Jesus have us do? Listen, I've heard it over and over again. Well, you can't live in this modern day without a smartphone. Yes, you can. There are, there are tools even available that if you have to have the smartphone, put filters, put email reports that go to an accountability partner. Do something to pluck out the eyes that are full of adultery. These false teachers go full bore into this sin. Now, what does this, what does this tell us? What is a, a reminder to us that every act of sin is an act of treason against the Lord of Lord, Lords and King of Kings of the universe? Every sinful action we indulge in is also driven by prideful arrogance, saying, I want to be autonomous of God. So these verses charge us or give us two challenges. First of all, character matters. Character matters. Especially among those who would be teachers of God's people. Character matters. You know, it is no accident that some of the most well-known false teachers in the world today, you know what also tends to plague them? Sex scandals. Over and over again, we see a pattern here. Why do we see this pattern? And, and, and I've seen, I've read articles. What is going on? Why, do, why are leaders doing this? And thousands of years ago, Peter had the answer. That's what false teachers do. They live to fulfill their sinful desires. And then secondly, it is a reminder to us that sin is terrible. Especially sexual defilement 
In the time in which Peter is writing, again, the, the society was as debauched, possibly more debauched than our society today when it comes to sexual ethics. And you think, well, is that possible to be worse than where we are today? Particularly as we just finished Pride Month. And the answer is absolutely. You read some of the accounts of things that happened at the temple to Diana, and they are unthinkable. So what are we to do in a society that has just gone full scale into sexual permissiveness and and denying the, the, the truths of God's design for sexual intimacy between me, meant to be between a man and a woman, one man and one woman in a covenant relationship. What are we to do? Be different. By God's grace, live differently than the world. Now listen, they'll mock you and they'll not understand why you don't join them in their flood of debauchery. And that gives us the opportunity to share with them the hope that we have in Christ that changes us and transforms us to be more like Christ. And it is a reminder for us as well to protect ourselves. If we need to do the radical amputation of certain things in our lives because they are stumbling blocks for this type of sin, then do it. Work by God's grace to turn from sin. So sinful indulgence is the first thing we see about their character. Secondly, we see that they are ignorant revilers. Notice what he says again in verse 10. Again, driving from this idea of of pride, as they're despising authority, they are bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, verse 11, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. What we find about these false teachers is that they are ignorant about the things of which they arrogantly speak. Peter mentions that they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, upon initial reading, you may think, well, maybe that's referring to some way that they they speak negatively or, or, or demean the character of angels. But when we see the contrast that Peter gives us in verse 11 we're actually able to see that these glorious ones are not glorious so far in the sense that they have glory, but rather they're glorious as they are created spiritual beings. They're powerful spiritual beings. That's the idea. Because thee, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, verse 11, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them, the them is referring back to these glorious ones. So who are these? Well, these are demons. These are the spiritual forces that are at work in this world of darkness. Now again, there's a lot of debate here, but I think when we bring this to to understand what's saying in verse 11, what we have going on here is these false teachers claim that they have some special power or some special ability that they can rebuke, not in dependence upon the Lord, but in dependence upon themselves, the demons that exist in this world. And we see that here. He says, he speaks of how angels are not as arrogant as these false teachers. 
And angels certainly are greater in might and power. They have amazing things that they can do, but they choose not to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against these demonic forces. And again, Jude gives us a further example of that. When he's disputing, when, when uh, the, the archangel is disputing, Michael disputing with, with the devil about the, mo- the body of Moses, does he just say, well, I'm going to rebuke you? No, what does he say? The Lord rebuke you. And so these demonic beings that are being, that are being called out by these false teachers in their prideful arrogance show how far these, the pride has reached into the hearts of these men, these false teachers. They're filled with pride and they take it upon themselves to judge these demons. Now here's the thing. Who reserves judgment for himself? God alone. And that is why the archangel Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. As a result of this, we see more of their consequences. They do this like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, and as a result of this, they're born to be caught and destroyed. They blaspheme about things of which they are ignorant. And as a result of that, they, in pronouncing this destruction, are themselves, what? Destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. Now, apparently what was going on in the first century is you had these arrogant teachers possibly coming and saying, well, I have special power to deal with these spiritual forces. Well, we see this today, unfortunately, in some that would be involved in what's quote-unquote called deliverance ministry. Now, please understand, I'm not painting everyone that is involved in trying to deal with people who are demon-possessed with this same uh, stroke. But oftentimes the ones that are the most prominent are the ones that are involved in this type of arrogance in their false teaching. They often use a purported power that they have over demons to take people who are susceptible and bring them in and say, well, I'm going to cast out the demon of whatever it is that's facing your life. I've seen it used to describe what we would think of as, as normal demon possession in the New Testament. Someone is facing some sort of, some sort of mental issue or facing some sort of uh, uh, spiritual struggle, and they come in and, and they provide some sort of power that they themselves are privy to to release them. But what I've seen is more insidious is they will come to people and they will say, you know, you've got cancer. I'm going to cast out the demon of cancer that's in you. You're having financial issues. Come to me and I'll take care of casting out that demon that is affecting your finances. You're having health issues. I'll take care of that health demon that's dealing with you. And listen, this is not like something I'm just pulling from the, from the dark corners of this movement. This is something that is on TV all the time. One of the things that Peter is going to point to here in a second is they use this then to take those who are susceptible and build their own 
empires by fleecing them. You're having a problem? Call this number. Sow a seed gift of whatever it is into my ministry. And God will return blessings to you fivefold, sevenfold from what you sow. And oh, by the way, I'll send you some miracle spring water and some oil to anoint yourself and you'll be better. Listen, this is stuff that is out there all the time on television. Listen, demon possession is real. I'm, don't, don't take what I'm saying here to say that that's not an, a reality of the world in which we live today. It is. But the answer to demon possession today is found not in my claiming special power to cast them out, but it is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He alone delivers from sin. And so what should we do when we come across someone who's demon-possessed? Preach the gospel to them. Call them to repent and to turn to Christ. And listen, is there any demon more powerful than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Praise God, no. Secondly, I think a a broader application of the principle here is that vengeance is not ours, but whose? God's. Paul reminds us of this. Beloved, when are we allowed to avenge ourselves? Never. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Listen, God's wrath is more than, much more capable than taking care of the injustices done against me than I could ever do in, against somebody else. So my response is to recognize that vengeance belongs to God. He's the one who repays. But now my response, which is so countercultural, is instead of saying, I'm going to get you, I'm going to say, I'm going to bless you. If your enemy is hungry, what are you to do? Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And this is the key. We do not overcome evil by evil, but we overcome evil with what? Good. So let us not fall into the same path thinking that we can somehow muscle through or deal with the problems of people that have done to us. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. The final thing we see about their character is that they are greedy for gain. There is one God that they follow, and it is their bellies. They desire to grow rich off of those whom they teach. Look again in verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls so that their hearts can be trained, or they do this because their hearts are trained in greed. Now, what is an unsteady soul? Well, the the idea here of enticing, right? They're enticing these unsteady souls comes from the world of fishing and hunting. Now, in fishing, particularly in Pennsylvania, in fishing it works because, you know, you take a, a worm or, or plastic worm or whatever, you throw it into the, 
into the uh, um, water, and a fish comes along. Actually, I've heard one of the best things you can use for bait is a hot dog. So just take a hot dog, stick it on a, a, a hook, and, and you'll, you'll get something. And what is it? That, that hot dog or whatever it is, that worm that you put in the water, it's there to entice the fish to bite. And then once the fish has bitten, you pull it in. And, you know, if, if you get like 50 or 60 bluegill, you might be able to have lunch for half a person anyways. And again, in some states, you're allowed to bait. You can't do this in Pennsylvania, but you're also allowed to bait uh, animals so that they'll come right in the way of, of what you're hunting. So, so this is what is going on here with these false teachers. They promise something. They dangle something. And I'll tell you what they're dangling is freedom to sin. I mean, who wouldn't want to be told, you know what, you can be like the rest of the world around you. Go for it. Just, just come to me. Just come to me. Just, just make sure you're, you're, you're taking care of me as your leader and, and as your teacher so that they can say, well, you've got permission. I've got permission from the teacher to do this. And then you can be involved in sinful activity. Now, these unsteady souls who catch on to that, the problem that makes them unsteady is they're not trained in doctrine. In fact, Peter talks about this. He talks about that we're to count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And then I, I love what Peter says, because I'm like, Amen, Peter, I agree with you. There are some things in them, Paul's writings, that are hard to understand. All right? Amen. <laughs> But notice what he says, those things that are hard to understand, the ignorant and what? Unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. The point of what Peter is saying, the unstable are those who don't think doctrine is important. That's for, that's for the seminarians, that's for the theologians, that's for the pastor to deal with. I want the really practical stuff. You ever hear that? You ever think that? I just wish pastor would be more practical. And the thing that Peter is pointing out is the most practical thing you can learn is theology, is doctrine, is teaching. Because that's the thing that when you hear a false teacher say, you can go out and indulge in sinful activities, what's going to happen? A big red flag is going to go off and you're going to say, that doesn't seem right. But if you're unstable... And this guy is some respected guy in the congregation. You know what you might say? Oh, this is a new way to look at Christianity. Sure, if I get to do all the fun stuff, why not? Now, Peter is writing this book to remind us of the qualities that we have in Christ, to remind us of the truth that's in Him so that we would be established in what? The truth. The truth that we have. And so Peter is angry in this passage. I really think that we see that in what he's writing. Because as he talks about these false teachers that are indulging in sin themselves, enticing unsteady souls to do this, 
They're exploiting God's people because their hearts are trained in greed. They're doing this all to fill their own pockets, to line their own bank accounts. And what does he say? There's this exclamation that comes out. Accursed children. Peter's angry because these false prophets have come in and they have exploited God's people. Again, look at verse 3. In their greed... They will exploit you with false words. And Peter carries through and tells us what they're doing to do that, and it makes him angry. Because the church of God, the people of God, are of such importance to him. He loves them in Christ that he cannot stand the idea that someone would come in and pick on the weakest of them. And pull them into sin because of their own desire to line their own pockets. That's the character of false prophets. Peter goes on and speaks about how they have, verse 15, they've forsaken the right way, they've gone astray, and they have followed in the way of of Balaam, the son of Beor. He brings up Balaam. Jude also brought up Balaam. We don't have the time, uh, because I'm already going to be way over today anyways, but we don't have the time to discuss in detail Balaam. But let me give you an assignment this afternoon. Read Numbers 22 through 24. It's an interesting passage. Balaam comes to be a, a diviner, if you will, someone who, who has the abilities of divination, saying that he has some special power, and uh, the, the king of, of the um, Amorites, I believe it is. That might not be right. Um, but, but Balak, uh, this king that is concerned about Israel, says, I want you to curse them. And of course, Balaam tries, and each time he speaks, instead of cursing Israel, because God is sovereign over all things, what does Balaam do? He blesses Israel. But it's interesting, at the, at the outset, Balaam begins by saying, no, I'm not supposed to do this. The Lord told me I'm not supposed to do this. But he keeps getting pulled along. And you know what Balak keeps, keeps tempting Balaam with? Money, power, influence. And so, and so you see in the narrative Balaam trying to figure out a way in which he can sort of have his cake and eat it too with this situation. Rather than rejecting the calls to curse Israel, he, he sort of goes along with it because that money seemed really, really, really tempting. And that's what Peter describes as what drives these false teachers. They go after the way of Balaam. They love to gain from their wrongdoing. Boy, they're able to indulge in sin themselves. They're able to satisfy those eyes that are greedy for adultery and sin. And then, in the, and then they get paid for it. And so, Peter describes the story, and, and we know one of the ways in which Balaam's madness is restrained is because God opens up the mouth of a donkey. And actually, you read read the account there. It's somewhat comical. This donkey is trying to save Balaam's life by not walking towards the angel of the Lord that's sitting there ready to kill Balaam. 
And, fi- and Balaam's beating on this donkey. What's wrong with you? And then finally the donkey sits down. He's like, oh, I'm going to kill you. And the donkey's like, dude. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't say dude. That's the, the, the Hebrew word for dude, I'm sure, is in there. It's like, I'm trying to help you. This is where false teachers, this is what drives them. Greedy gain. They're all about the dollars. So what can we learn from this corrupted character that we see in these false teachers? And just very quickly, I want to mention four things. First of all, sin is sin. Despite what the world would say today, despite the immense cultural pressure to give permission to sinful things, we must say sin is sin. There are plenty of Christians out there, quote-unquote Christian teachers today, that you can find that would give permission to that which the culture says is acceptable. And we must reject that teaching and we must stand and say, particularly among sexual ethics, one man One biological man, one biological woman in a covenant relationship for life. Anything outside of that is an abhorrence to what God has designed. We can't cede on this. Despite what popular teacher comes out and says so. Again, Peter, what is one of the things that defines and drives these false teachers? They are insatiable for sin, and they teach others to do the same. Secondly, doctrine is essential. Listen, you you can't go through the Christian life without focusing on what the Scriptures teach, focusing on learning what the Bible says. Doctrine is not divisive. Does doctrine divide? Yes, but in a good way and that it divides true followers of Christ from those that are false. And Peter gives us a warning here. If you are not seeking to grow in your knowledge of the Scriptures and the knowledge of what it teaches, you are unstable. And you're prone to being carried away by the teachings of these false teachers. Again, Peter reminds us of the truth so that we would be established in them. Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to continue in what he's learned and have firmly believed. It's not just enough to believe, but to continue in those beliefs, to grow in them. And Paul warns Timothy, or he tells him, all Scripture then is that which is profitable for this teaching. It reproves us, it corrects us, it trains us in our way of righteousness. Because there is a time coming when people will not endure what? Sound teaching. But they will accumulate to themselves with their itching ears teachers to suit what? Their own passions. Their own sinful activities. So doctrine is essential. Thirdly, greed corrupts. Paul reminds us, Paul reminds Timothy, again, the root love of money is the root of not all evil, but all kinds of evil. And it is through this love of money that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Listen, if somebody is a teacher and he is in it for the money, 
He is a false teacher. And the final thing we see here is we need to beware of false teachers. I think one of the most dangerous channels on television is the Christian channel. And I say this because guess what you see a lot of there? The stuff that Peter is describing. False teachers. We're pilgrims. We don't belong in this world. We have said by God's grace that we have decided to follow who? Jesus. And there's no turning back. False teachers want us to go back to the life of slavery to sin. By God's grace, may we reject their ways and may their character become evident to us as they act to exploit God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you give us your word to guide us into all truth, that your spirit guides us into truth, that, the fa- that Father, you guide us into all truth, and your word is given to establish us in the truth. So, Lord, as we have seen the character of these false prophets, is that it has been a challenge to us to examine our own character. Father, may we live submissively to what your word says. Father, may we not turn back to the way of destruction. Father, protect us. We pray this all in Christ's name.